The Pentagon warns Congress that it's running low on funding to replace weapons the U.S. has sent to Ukraine. You know, if the question is, can Ukraine expect more support, the answer is yes. And that's because there is a solid majority on both sides of the Atlantic. We are reaching an inflection point of sorts. The level of aid is likely to go down. Plus, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has led to thousands of its own citizens seeking refuge in the United States. Some 30,000 Russians have applied for asylum in the U.S. the year after Ukraine invasion. And later in the program, how Russia recruited Cubans to fight its war in Ukraine. Today is Tuesday, October 3rd. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London in Washington. The Pentagon is warning Congress that it's running low on money to replace weapons the U.S. has sent to Ukraine and has already been forced to slow down resupplying some troops, according to a letter sent to congressional leaders. Despite what appears to be cracks both in Congress and in the NATO alliance, President Biden says the U.S. is determined to continue supporting Ukraine. VOA's Anita Powell reports from the White House. Cracks are appearing in the wall of Western support for Ukraine, as President Joe Biden beseeches congressional Republicans to grant the $24 billion he seeks to fortify Ukraine against Russia's invasion. Congress over the weekend passed a stopgap spending bill that keeps the U.S. government open for another six weeks. But that package did not include the Ukraine aid, leading Biden to appeal across the political aisle to legislators who have expressed concerns about accountability and exasperation that the war is still raging after more than 19 months. President Joe Biden. I hope my friends on the other side keep their word about support for Ukraine. They said they're going to support Ukraine in a separate vote. We cannot, under any circumstance, allow American support for Ukraine to be interrupted. I fully expect the Speaker to keep his commitment to secure the passage and support needed to help Ukraine as they defend themselves against aggression and brutality. On Monday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told VOA that the administration remains determined amid this domestic pressure and concerns from the newly elected leader of NATO member Slovakia, who campaigned that he would not send a single bullet to Ukraine from the state's stocks. Jean-Pierre. NATO alliance, it's the strongest that it's ever been because of what this president's leadership has been. We're going to continue to certainly uh, have those conversations with our partners and allies. Uh, But look, and I said this earlier, it does not help. It does not help what we see House Republicans doing. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, hosting European foreign ministers in Kiev on Monday, said unity is crucial. Our victory explicitly depends on our cooperation. The more powerful and principled steps we take together, the sooner this war will end, end fairly, with the restoration of our territorial integrity and a reliable guarantee of peace for the whole of Europe. And from Moscow, President Vladimir Putin's spokesman appeared to take a dig at the situation, saying Moscow sees tiredness among Western supporters. To which Jean-Pierre replied, And if Putin thinks he can outlast us, he's wrong. He's wrong. And so we will have another package of aid for Ukraine soon to signal our continued support for the brave people of Ukraine. And so that's our message. If he thinks he can outlast us, that is Mr. Putin, we believe he's wrong. But military experts acknowledge that Zelensky's counteroffensive, which aimed to bite off chunks of Russian-held territory, has been slower than hoped. 
Mark Cantian is a retired U.S. Marine colonel, now at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The results have been disappointing, and a number of people are asking the question, how does this end? What is Ukraine's theory of victory? I think President Zelensky is going to have to articulate, articulate that in the next couple of months in order to rally his supporters. But the Ukrainian people remain determined. Over the weekend, the besieged capital held its first full marathon since the start of the invasion. 5,000 participants, many of them service members, some of them amputees, ran the 42-kilometer course to raise money for the nation's defense, step by painful step. Anita Powell, VOA News, the White House. European Union foreign policy chief Josep Borrell Monday proposed to Ukraine a new bilateral, multi-annual envelope of the European peace facility of up to 5 billion euros for the next year. He made the proposal as EU foreign ministers convened in Kyiv for their first ever meeting outside the bloc after a pro-Russian candidate won an election in Slovakia and the U.S. Congress left Ukraine war funding out of its spending bill. Our resolve to support the five of freedom and independence of Ukraine is firm and will continue. VOA's Kim Lewis spoke with Charles Kupchan, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, about all of what these developments might mean. Well, I think the EU foreign ministers gathered in Kiev in part because they wanted to send a message of solidarity and continued to support at a time when the political will to continue providing arms and economic assistance to Ukraine has grown more shaky than it's been. And it's not just the victory of Mr. Vico in the election, and he has openly expressed a skepticism about more arms. It's here in the United States, where uh, because of a budget crisis, the aid bill that was requested by the Biden administration has been stripped out. I'm expecting some money will be restored, but it was stripped out in Poland because of a spat over the sale of Ukrainian grain in Poland has said it will suspend arms transfers. So the situation is just more fragile than it used to be. I'm not surprised. In some ways, I think the most interesting question is why did it take so long, right? We've been in a war now since February of 2022. And thus far, the coalition has been very, very solid, despite the costs of transferring weapons, the impact on our economies through inflation, the inflow of refugees to Europe. So I think we could have said that things are going to get wobbly. They're now getting wobbly. And the meeting in Kyiv was a way of saying, yes, we understand things are looking a little bit shaky, but steady as she goes, we're here to support you. But public opinion in most Western countries is still largely behind Ukraine. However, political leaders are worried about calls on both the far right and the far left of the political spectrum challenging this consensus that has been held so far. And when you're looking at the elections coming up, some are taking place now in Europe and then the U.S. has an election coming up. How will funding Ukraine play out in the election cycles? You know, if the question is, can Ukraine expect more support? The answer is yes. And that's because there is a solid majority on both sides of the Atlantic. We are reaching an inflection point of sorts in two respects. Number one, the level of aid is likely to go down. And here in the United States, the Biden administration asked for $24 billion in additional funding 
for aid to Ukraine. The Senate bill had taken that down to $6 billion, and not even that $6 billion passed, even though I think it will be reinstated in some form down the road, probably wedded to security on the U.S. southern border. And the second reason I think we're at inflection point is simply that the domestic politics of supporting Ukraine is going to get harder. And that's because, you know, the cat is now out of the bag. It is now politically acceptable to speak up and to say, hey, no more blank check. We've given Ukraine a lot of money. It's time to begin to pull back. That's a voice. That's an argument that I think you're going to hear more of. But again, the aid will eventually flow. It's just going to be harder. And it's important to keep in mind that all of this is taking place against a offensive in Ukraine that has not gone as well as had hoped for. And battlefield outcomes, the lack of substantial progress by Ukraine, I think, is playing into a political debate here in the United States and in the European Union that's saying, okay, where do we go from here? How is President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, how is he responding to this new take on funding? Well, President Zelensky came to the UN General Assembly. He then made a separate trip to to Washington before he went back to Ukraine. He visited Canada. He is out there pounding the pavement because he realizes that he needs to rally support in those NATO countries that have been providing Ukraine arms and and economic assistance. And he is a great salesman. He has been on target. He has been making arguments from the very beginning that have helped build support on both sides of the Atlantic. But yes, he now faces an uphill battle. He's going to have to keep making the case on a regular basis for continued assistance. And we will see. But I do think that we can expect the level of aid to head in a downward direction and just see more difficulty, more political gamesmanship on both sides of the Atlantic when it comes to supporting Ukraine. Charles Kupchan, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, speaking with my colleague, Kim Lewis. Ukraine's Air Force said Tuesday it destroyed 29 drones and a cruise missile that Russia used to attack several regions overnight. I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv for an update. It was another tough night uh, for Ukraine, especially for Dnipropetrovsk region, uh, because uh, it was quite a big drone attack targeting Dnipropetrovsk and the region. Just 13 drones were destroyed in the air over the Dnipropetrovsk region and one missile. In total, the attack included 30 drones and one missile. 29 drones were destroyed and the missile as well. What is interesting, this is yet another drone attack and we can see that more and more attacks that Russian forces are implementing, they're using drones instead of missiles. And this is an interesting topic to discuss because uh, just yesterday we've heard from the Ukrainian 
air forces that there is a prediction that more and more attacks would be involving drones and Ukrainian military is expecting that Russian forces will use drones more over the missiles when more attacks would include drones. Well, it seems like it's becoming a drone war, so to speak, whether it's on the offense or defense. Drones seem to be, you know, sort of the main characters in this horrible play that we're watching. Uh, yes, actually, it's uh, quite well said. The drones war is in place, definitely. And uh, I just had a chance to talk to uh, to Ukrainian representative of the drones industry, a person who is personally involved in the production of drones. And he told me that actually more intelligence drones are required and as well as fighting drones, which are produced in Ukraine. And he's also confirming this, that the drones war is in place and there is a big plan for Ukrainian companies uh, and particularly his production to produce more. This is what we also can see uh, at the battlefield and we hear from military as well that more drones are needed and this drone production also comes in place with uh, this latest decision by Congress uh, which did not include new budgeting for Ukraine and a lot of people here in Ukraine are actually worried that this could also affect the production of uh, such weapons. Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. We thank you so much as always. Thank you. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. In the poor outskirts of the Cuban capital of Havana, a spate of men have been recruited to fight for the Russian army in Ukraine. Reuters has traced their stories and spoken to the loved ones they left behind. Lauren Anthony with Reuters has more. I knew the contract was real when I arrived here. The Russian Federation brought me here. Everyone here knew what they were coming for. I know it for sure. Former bricklayer Enrique Gonzalez is one of many Cubans who say they were recruited by Russia to fight in the war in Ukraine. On a video call to his wife, Yamadeli Cervantes, he films the training camp he now works from near Tula, a few hours south of Moscow. Reuters spoke to Cervantes at their home in the small town of La Federal in Cuba. She says Gonzalez's decision to fight for Russia was a financial one. Just days after he left, Cervantes received part of his $2,040 signing on bonus. She has since been able to buy much needed essentials, all on Russia's dime. I am going to say that necessity is what is driving this. If we weren't so much in need, I am sure these men wouldn't have gone. So you work and work and work. My husband worked alone without any assistance. He used to say, I work in bricklaying alone because I would rather give you the money that I would give to someone to get help and tell him what to do. He worked very hard. One day he said, I can't bear this anymore. I asked, what happened? He said, no worries, I know what I will do, but I can't bear this anymore. Russia didn't immediately respond to questions about Cubans being recruited for their military. The Cuban government didn't respond to queries for this story either. The Caribbean island is economically stricken and communist-run. National data shows the sign-on bonus Gonzalez received is over 100 times the average monthly state salary in Cuba of just $17. Few places feel the pinch more than La Federal, which is just outside of the capital, Havana. 
2022 data says one in four of its 800 residents are unemployed. On the short dirt road where Cervantes lives, at least three men have left for Russia since word of the army work began to spread in June. Several were recruited, but you can count on one hand those who are left. Reuters traced the stories of those men and those of more than a dozen others from districts in and around Havana. They come from all different walks of life. One is a shopkeeper, another a refinery worker. The interviews with many of the men and their loved ones, as well as a trove of WhatsApp messages, travel papers, photos and phone numbers, paint the most detailed picture yet of how Cubans are flocking to back Moscow's war machine. 23-year-old Joanne Viondi said he knew about dozens of men in Villa Maria, the district that includes La Federal, that had been recruited for the Russian war effort since June. He showed Reuters WhatsApp messages with someone called Diana, who he says is a Russian recruiter. Viondi kept in touch with multiple friends who had signed contracts with the Russian army. As far as he knew, they were fine. Most, he said, were now in Ukraine. <laughs> here you have to work hard to get things done and you face 25,000 barriers here. For this reason, everybody said, I choose this so that I don't die of hunger in Cuba. They perfectly knew where they were going. I perfectly knew where I was going too. Despite his initial enthusiasm, Viondi became anxious about going to Russia and cut contact with the recruiter. But Diana was mentioned as a key contact by most of the people Reuters spoke with. All nine recruits identified by Reuters signed up to fight in the war. Reuters was unable to reach Diana for comments and couldn't confirm her full name. News of Cubans ending up in the Russian military emerged in September when the government, a long-standing ally of Russia, said it had arrested 17 people linked to a human trafficking ring that lured Cubans to fight for Moscow. Reuters could not establish the identities of those involved in the alleged trafficking ring or when and whether they were arrested. Cuba has sent mixed messages about its citizens fighting for Russia. In early September, it said it was illegal for its citizens to fight for a foreign army, punishable by life in prison. Days later, though, Cuba's ambassador in Moscow said Havana didn't oppose Cubans who, quote, just wanted to sign a contract and legally take part with the Russian army in this operation. Cuba has since reiterated that citizens were prohibited from fighting as war mercenaries. Lauren Anthony reporting for Reuters. Apple's iPhone 15 is reportedly being sold in Russia despite sanctions prohibiting it. We hear more from VOA fact-checking website Polygraph Info. On September 21st, Mobile Telesystems, or MTS, Russia's largest communications provider, presented Apple's new iPhone 15 24 hours before the start of global sales. Lenta.ru, a mainstream news site owned by the Russian government through a subsidiary of the Spurbank State Bank, reported. MTS was the first company in Russia to present the iPhone 15 Pro Max in its flagship store a day before the start of global sales. At the MTS presentation, store visitors were able to test a new product and receive detailed advice. That is true. In fact, all versions of iPhone 15 can be ordered on MTS's website at prices comparable to those in the United States. Following the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, Apple, like more than a thousand other Western companies, suspended sales of its products and services in Russia. 
Apple also removed apps from Russian state-owned media outlets RT News and Sputnik News from its app store outside Russia. So, how was the new iPhone made available in Russia even before its global sales debut? Through a Russian government parallel import scheme allowing various products, including Apple smartphones, to be imported through third countries without the copyright holder's permission. As a result, while the U.S. expanded restrictions on exports to Russia this past February, including a ban on exporting smartphones worth over $300, 1.1 million iPhones were imported into Russia in the first half of 2023. MTS representatives were quoted as saying that the new smartphones are coming to Russia from the UAE, China, and some other countries. Polygraph Info is a fact-checking website produced by Voice of America. The website serves as a resource for verifying the increasing volume and disinformation and misinformation being distributed and shared globally. Galina Jalibina and her husband left Russia after the country invaded Ukraine. Like many Russian families, they crossed from Mexico into the U.S. and eventually landed in New York City. Despite challenging conditions in their new home, she says they are not planning to go back to Russia anytime soon. Elena Wolf has the story narrated by Anna Rice. A home means everything. Hi, my name is Galia and I want to show you the apartment we found after having lived at a homeless shelter for three months. Here is our kitchen. We are overjoyed to have any kitchen. We don't have any furniture yet, but we have a mattress and suitcases serve as our nightstands. In mid-September, these suitcases were parked at a homeless shelter in New York City in a room for undocumented families that crossed the U.S.-Mexican border. On our first day in New York, the Refugee Service Center employees gave us a form in Russian straight away. I was shocked. According to border authorities in Texas, some 30,000 Russians have applied for asylum in the U.S. the year after Ukraine invasion. And according to New York Immigration Court data, about 11,000 have sought asylum in New York since October 2021. There was a moment a week after the war started when I thought I was going crazy. It was scary to talk out loud because I had a feeling someone would report on me and I would end up in prison. It's not easy for them. Now, instead of having their own alarm business, Galina is cleaning apartments and her husband is fixing air conditioning units. But when you realize you need to leave, you are willing to work hard, you are willing to take any job at first, no matter how unpleasant it is. You are willing to live not the most comfortable life at first, but I believe you cannot really go hungry in the U.S. Finding a place to live without credit history or documents has been a challenge. But finally, after three months of living in the shelter, the family found a place in the Bronx. Hello. You're the one who moved in? With yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. My name is Jane. I live here. Nice to meet you, Jane. Likewise. 
For now, they are just getting settled. The family sometimes attends rallies together to protest the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Back in Russia, as a safety precaution, only one family member would attend demonstrations. It was a weird feeling. We went there all together. Back in Russia, we decided who is going to go, my husband or me, because someone had to be there for our son, just in case something happens. And this feeling, when you are not afraid of policemen, it means a lot. Though Galina knows their acclimation won't be fast or easy, she also knows New York has what she values the most – freedom. For Yelena Wolf in New York, NRI's POA News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America, Washington, Bam Bam Bozet, D.C.